If you are just joining us online, welcome. Glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Jeff. I'm the pastor here. Um, if you're new in the room, same to you. Welcome. Glad that you're here. Um, we are doing something a little bit different today. We've just come out of a series in the book of Ruth. And uh, a few weeks ago, I was cleaning out my office, saw a book on this topic, and at the time had been praying for a couple weeks about what we should maybe do to talk about uh, what's going on in the world. Um, although, of course, war is something that's just kind of always going on. We don't always hear about it. This one in particular we're hearing about. And so uh, there was a few questions that I've had over the course of a few conversations in the church. And so uh, this is what we're going to do for today. And so, uh, again, glad that we're here for it and, and just want to have a uh, just kind of a discussion. And, and I'll, I'll make my goals clear in just a little bit. Um, I was born in the year 1985, and so the reason I tell you that is that for me, uh, and many in my generation and younger, I know, so young, and many in my generation and younger, um, we have a pretty specifically, uh, pr pretty historically specific experience uh, when it comes to war in the world. And so for me, uh, there hadn't been any global conflicts that I can remember in my childhood. The biggest things that were on my radar uh, coming up were just basically the military operations that came as a result of 9-11. Those are the things that are the most burned in my memory. So for me, war is kind of a distant idea. Like when I would speak to my grandfather who fought in World War II, he and I had very different perspectives on it because he, he was there. He served in the Pacific Theater in World War II in the Navy. And so for me, war is this distant idea that really, was, I was concerned about it, but it was never on the forefront, the front burner of concern for me. Uh, and, and maybe that's partly just me. Maybe I'm not as aware as I could be or as I should be about something as serious as war, but that's just kind of my reality. Now, in my dad's generation, there was Vietnam, of course. There was Korea. In my grandparents' generation, there was the Second World War and maybe the first, depending on uh, where you, what time you were born. Of course, there's many other conflicts, but I think kind of Vietnam and World War II, when I think about the past two generations before mine, uh, really marked the, the conversations that I would have with people in those generations. And so uh, I also grew up in the church, in a church very much like this. I grew up in a Christian home. And so for me, all the ways that I view the world are going to kind of be through the stream of Christianity, which I came up in and the time I came up in. Uh, and it's the same sort of stream or branch of Christianity I find myself in now, the, the, the Protestant evangelical, and I mean in the classical sense, not in the voting block sense that it means now, but in the Protestant evangelical stream of the church in America. I remember the first time that I heard the word Protestant, I was with my grandfather at a doctor's appointment, and they asked him, what religion are you? And he said, Protestant. And I was like, what's that? And, and so that's my experience in the church. We didn't use that language a lot. Uh, now, here's why I'm telling you all of that. You all know, over a month ago, February 24th, I can't believe it's been that long already, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine and began what could potentially be the, the biggest land war since in, in Europe, particularly since World War II. This is a big deal. And so all of us, as a result of living in the kind of connected world that we live in, right, uh, we're all aware of this. And if you're a Christian, uh, what I think this does is sort of force us to grapple with the reality of war in this world. Uh, this week, as I was preparing for this, I noticed that there's this pattern uh, where when something happens, a conflict happens, Christians start talking about it and start dealing with, what do we think about this? Uh, and so as a pastor, one of the roles that I think that I have is to talk about things from this platform that I think all of us are kind of dealing with, but maybe we either don't want to talk about it or we don't think we should talk about it or we don't know how to talk about it. 
And so that feels a little overwhelming to me, and I feel like I'm pretty underqualified to talk about this, but it's part of my role, so I wanted to take this week and just probably next to just this week lay out for you some of the history of the way that the church has thought about these things in the past, uh, and maybe just give some tools and language to you in order for you to just kind of do the work of, as you're living in this world, make your faith have feet, if you will, right? Make your faith, the rubber hit the road. And so today is going to be on the border probably between a sermon and a lecture. Uh, and so I just want to invite you to stay with me. Uh, we'll be done in about three hours, no, in about half an hour. <laughs> and hopefully we'll arrive at a place uh, where my hope is you'll just be able to have more conversations about this freely uh, and faithfully. Uh, and I also just want to preface this by saying uh, that to, nothing I say today is intended in any way to be a critique of our military or the personnel in it. Uh, I come from a family where my grandfather fought in World War II, so I have a lot of respect for people who serve in that vocation, which is what it is. It's a vocation uh, that some people serve in. It would be foolish of me to try to critique uh, those things, and so I'm, I simply want to just give you an overview, a framework for Christian thought on the broad topic of war and or violence. Uh, and so if you want to talk further about what we cover, you should have said this, but you didn't, or you did say this and you shouldn't have. Uh, that's literally why I'm doing this. And so I want to, let's get a coffee, let's get a meal, and let's chat about it. So let me start by praying, and then I want to just give you a short overview of some Bible texts. Uh, there's a lot of them. We have them on the screen today. I normally don't do that, but uh, we're going to jump around quite a bit. And so uh, we're going to have those on the screen. And then I want to just give you some language for the differing views in the church on this issue. So let me pray. Jesus, thank you again for bringing us here. Thank you for making us whole persons who are spirits and bodies and minds all together. And thank you that we get to use all of those parts to worship you. And so today I pray that you would uh, help us to engage all of ourselves in this conversation, not just our minds, but also our emotions, and to really take stock of what it is that we feel when we think about this, but also our minds as well, that we would uh, be wise as you've called us to be. And so we pray all this in, in your name for your glory. Amen. Now, whenever you try and have this discussion, or even a discussion on whether or not violence is allowable for Christians or not, inevitably one of the questions that you have to deal with is the Old Testament. We have to talk about the Old Testament, right? Uh, if you know the stories of the Old Testament in our Bibles, you know that war and violence is a part of that world, just like it's a part of our world just like it's a part of ours. In fact, uh, we saw most recently in our own study of the book of Ruth that the reality of violence, particularly to those who are most vulnerable to it, and in their case, in that story, women who were immigrants, uh, we saw that show itself in that story in the concern that Boaz and Naomi both expressed for Ruth and potentially being assaulted by men. So this is part of the world that's always been there. So in that regard, the world has always been the way it is in terms of violence, right? It's always been there. Uh, actually, the way that we live is the exception. And so as we look at the early Old Testament, what we see is that war is seen in kind of a whole. Uh, even sometimes the conflict is initiated by God. We have to say that to be faithful. Some of the wars in the Old Testament are declared by God himself. So I'm going to give you three examples that, uh, there's three examples that can be found. Exodus 17, Numbers 31, and 1 Samuel 15 are just some examples. I'm going to read you the example from Numbers 31. This is Numbers chapter 31, verses 1 through 4. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. 
So Moses spoke to the armed men of war that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. Another part of this to keep in mind is that these wars in the Old Testament uh, again, had religious significance for the Israelites. Sacrificial rites are performed to ensure that God is continuing to support them in their battles. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is seen as symbolizing the presence of God. It's taken into battle. And so we have to deal with this as Christians uh, when the Old Testament uh, violence is seen. And we see an example in 1 Samuel 4 of the way that the Israelites connect God's hand to their outcome in battle. This is 1 Samuel 4, 1 through 3. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So again, we see that war is part of the life of God's people. We have to faithfully do that. So this is one of the critiques of the church today by people who want to critique the church. Well, the God of the Old Testament is this angry God, and if we try and pretend like, nah, that stuff's not in there, that's not faithful. What we need to do is deal with it and say it is in there. And so we, we read the Bible through the lens of Jesus, the lens of the New Testament, into the Old Testament. What's very interesting, though, is that later in Israel's history, the prophets begin to talk about the terror of war as God's judgment against his people for their sins. And so the glory of war fades in the minds of the Israelites. They, they don't seem to see it in the same light. We see this in Habakkuk and in Jeremiah. And so Israel began to look for this day when this endless cycle of war would be broken. Here's an example from Isaiah 2. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train for war anymore. This is a picture of the kingdom of heaven. This day is still coming when we will take our weapons and make them into tools for peace. So I think I've used this word picture before, but there's an idea in the study of the Bible or what's called hermeneutics that says that as we progress through time and history, we're able to see things a little bit more clearly than we could in the past. Paul talks about things in the Old Testament being a mystery that have now been revealed. And so this isn't to say that we're smarter than past generations, because we're not, but simply that we have more information. So a, a few summers ago, my, my, my her brother there, beautiful. And part of that drive is through Kansas, which if you've never done that before, it's as flat as you think it's, it is. Uh, it's flat and there's windmills everywhere. It's crazy. It kind of looks like, a, like a, a, an apocalyptic movie or something get into Colorado and you see mountains up ahead. You can tell they're mountains and they're, they kind of look like one big mountain if you've never seen them before. But then, of course, as you get closer, you see that there is far more detail in the mountain behind the ones that you could see. And so now you have a much more developed idea of what reality is. You didn't become smarter from Kansas to Colorado. Uh, you just got to see reality more for what it was. This is a little bit like what we're talking about here. As the nation of Israel 
goes through history. As God's people progress through time, the prophets begin to talk about the horrors of war. And what we see is that people begin to long for the day when we turn our weapons into tools of peace. And so this is the trajectory that seems to be happening as we move from Old Testament to New Testament. Now, don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. I'm not saying the New Testament is more important than the Old Testament or anything like that, or that we can throw the Old Testament out. Absolutely not saying that. What I'm saying, though, is that it's the lens by which we look at God's revelation to us. So when we read the New Testament, this is important to know, because as we get to the New Testament, violence, and we can infer from that war, is universally seen as evil, and Jesus emphasizes and commands peace instead. And so Jesus explicitly taught us to avoid retaliation and revenge and to even extend love to our enemies, to those who persecute us. He's not pulling punches with his language. So here's his words from his most important teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. This is Matthew 5, 38 to 45. You have heard it that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So very clear but difficult instruction from Jesus. That's a hard word from Jesus, but it is a word from Jesus. Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul and the other New Testament writers, they echo Jesus' sentiment and they expand on it. Here, this is from the book of Romans in chapter 12. And listen to this first sentence. Uh, On the screen, we have the ESV, but I'm going to read. You can follow along still on the screen, but I'm going to read you that first sentence from a different translation that says it a little bit stronger. He says in Romans 12, starting in verse 17, Pay no one evil for evil, but listen to this. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Then he goes on. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Notice our identity there, beloved. And then what does he say? Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That sentence right there, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good, is so central to what it means to follow Jesus. So from these texts, it seems pretty clear that violence and war are not what we as Christians should want to take part in. And yet, despite the uh, immense evil of war, Jesus also said that it's inevitable that war is going to be part of life in this broken world until he returns. In Mark 13, Jesus speaks his famous words about nation rising against nation as a part of the signs that his return is coming 
close. Jesus also didn't seem to oppose those who are part of earthly governments or those who are serving in the vocation of soldier as a part of these governments. He, he didn't think that they were inherently evil people. We see in Matthew 8, 5 through 10, that Jesus has an interaction with a centurion. Who's that? That's a soldier in charge of other soldiers. And, and Jesus speaks to him and even affirms the faith of this soldier. So Jesus treats them with honor and respect. We also see Jesus teaching soldiers, which shows Jesus saw them as being just as worthy as anyone else to receive his teaching and to walk in his way. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus instructs some soldiers who ask him what they should do in response to his teaching and, and, his, way, uh, and his way that for them, following him in their vocation looks like don't extort people. He, he doesn't tell them in that text, you can't be a soldier anymore. He says, don't extort people. Don't use your power wrongly. So Jesus is apparently okay with the reality of soldiers and with them having a vocation, yet at the same time, he calls them to something higher within that vocation. Finally, in Acts chapter 10, uh, it, we see an example of a soldier who the Bible puts forward as someone to follow and to emulate. This is real interesting. Acts 10, 1 and 2. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Listen to how he's described by the Bible. This is a soldier who goes to war, but this is how he's described. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So again, my reason for showing you these particular texts is just to give you an overview, but I just want to lay in front of you the reality that this is complicated, and you're right, the Bible does seem to be affirming contradictory things, that conscience and wisdom seem to be playing a part in how we follow Jesus. It is okay for us as Christians and the church to admit that this is a hard thing for us to decipher, and it's a hard thing for us to understand. The world is complicated. We don't have to be afraid of not knowing exactly what to say or think. Now, because it's not a simple black and white, straight answer from the Bible, we are required, though, as God's people, to use what God has given us to do what is right. Now, what has God given us to do what is right? He's given us First and foremost, his spirit within us, right? But he's given you this beautiful gift of wisdom and discernment, which instead of working in contrast to your intuitions and your emotions, which God also gave you, actually can work alongside of them. I say this all the time, but there's a reason that there's a whole section in our Bible called wisdom literature. There's a reason we're told more than once to be wise as God's people. God has given us human agency, and along with that, He's given us the gift of wisdom, which we as the church believe is best exercised within the community of faith, where you're probably going to run into somebody who makes different decisions than you and follows the same Jesus. That's part of what makes us beautiful as the church. So for the last part of our time today, for the kind of second half here, what I want to do is just walk you through the two main buckets of what I think is wisdom that the church has worked with when it comes to how to think Christianly about this issue of violence and war. So as we look at church history, there have been three ways that the church has thought about war and violence, but only, I'm only going to cover two of them because two, only two of them are even uh, remotely valid. So to preface this, we just want to say that the, the Christian idea, which, which the, Christian, the Christian version or the Christian ethic of war 
is not distinctly Christian. Like the way that we think about war as Christians didn't originate from us. Instead, it comes from Hebrew and Greek ideas about war onto which we place our values of the gospel and we impose on top of those ideas Christian values, which then lead us to have a uniquely but not totally original view of what war and peace mean for us. And if you want to read further on that, I've got a, a book that will help you with that. But So back to three attitudes of war in the history of Christianity. These are the three, pacifism or nonviolence, just war theory. For today, we're just going to call it just war, uh, meaning justice, uh, and then the crusade theory. Now, I'm only going to deal with those first two of pacifism and just war because, honestly, the crusade is just untenable with Christianity. There's just no way to, to make that work. It, it did for a while in the church, but, but I just want to tell you they were way off. I don't know how else to say that. I think the first two can be faithfully engaged in by Christians who simply come to different conclusions. But the crusade idea is built on an inherently flawed idea that the church should, by force, impose its ideals and morals on the world around it. And actually, this is a big part of the conversation going on in the Russian Orthodox Church right now. That No one has said this, but this crusade idea is alive and well uh, in, in that conversation. And there's a schism happening with the Orthodox priests in Russia. Uh, very interesting to read about and, and sad to see. Now, that view, the crusade view, is fundamentally so fundamentally flawed, I, we don't even need to deal with it today. I mean, if your view of war leads you to get baptized but hold your sword out of the water so that God can have all of you except this tool of death, that's a flawed view. And so, so we're not going to work on that. But for today, we're going to focus briefly on the first two of pacifism and just war theory. So let's start with just war, and then we'll get to pacifism, or, or more recently, it's been called nonviolence. Uh, but so this is just war theory. Now, one thing that all Christians have always agreed on is that it's very clear from the Bible that there is a Christian ideal that we should want the elimination of war. Everybody agrees on that. We want the elimination of war and brotherly love among all people. So it's not fair to think of people who hold to just war as those who want war. That's not what the view says. But those who would hold to just war would say that in this imperfect world, and this may be the way you're thinking about it, and that's part of why I want to give this language, that in this imperfect world broken from sin, war might be forced on those who didn't ask for it. And that's, that's exactly what's happening right now in Ukraine. And, and it, this has happened way too many times in the history of humanity, right? The strong take advantage of the weak by military force. And so those who are wise and following Jesus in the church have said, although we don't want war, it seems right to us that we might have to engage in violence and war in order to protect those who are being attacked. Now, you might argue that this is always true of any war whatsoever, that somebody wants war and the other party doesn't. There's always those who did not choose war, but upon whom war has come. That's always the case. Uh, and it's always far more destructive, devastating, dark, and evil than anyone ever thinks it will be. War always goes further than you think it will be. And the same is true on a personal level when it comes to violence. When we talk about self-defense, this is the same conversation. Once you cross into the world of violence, you can't control the outcome anymore. And this is why... We view it the way we view it. It's a dangerous thing that we don't necessarily want. And so war is the same, but on a bigger scale. It, it, it never leaves you less affected than what you thought. It always leaves you 
more. And so Christians living in this kind of world that seems so far removed from the ideal that we, should, that we believe should exist have done their best to grapple with this. And they're faithful and they're following Jesus. Here's a couple theologians from way back in the day of church history. St. Augustine of Hippo, St. Thomas Aquinas. These two men are primarily responsible for kind of the origination and the formulation and the development of the theory of the just war, which has remained the majority position within the Christian church in order to approach war to this day. So I want to emphasize again, just war people, people who hold to the idea of just war are not saying that they want war or that wouldn't be just war. In fact, good just war people will do anything they can to avoid war. But they realize that sometimes it's unavoidable. And so while there, may be, uh, that while there might be some variations on the just war theory, I just want to give you kind of the basic requirements for you to know that this is just war or not. Uh, there's a lot written about this in the history of the church. First, there has to be a just cause for the war, for, for going to war. So here's a few uh, bullet points underneath that. War has to be waged only in response to certain grave and lasting damage inflicted by an aggressor. That Then under just war theory, it is just to go to war. The motive for war has to be advancement of good or avoidance of evil. You can't go to war to do something evil. The, object, the ultimate objective of war must be to bring peace. Now, within the just war conversation, there is all kinds of conversations about what kind of weapons are justified. And the book that I just read on this was written right after World War II, and the atom bombs were dropped. And so we had to think again, wait a minute. Is this, is this right? Revenge, revolt, desire to harm, dominate, or exploit, and similar things are never justification for war. Uh, I want to come back to that uh, particular point in a little bit, because for me, this is where the nonviolent argument kind of has a little bit of pull for me, this, and I'll get to that. Uh, secondly, under, under just war theory, every possible means of peacefully settling the conflict must be exhausted first. This is the second tenet of just war theory. Third, there must be serious prospects of success. Bloodshed without hope of victory is not justified under just war theory. That's a tough one. Uh, fourth, I think, right? Fourth, the war must be declared by a legitimate authority. Private individuals or groups have to seek redress with their government through uh, those means, not by acts of war under just war theory. That, that's a, again, that's a sticky one. Uh, next, the war must not cause greater evil than the evil to be eliminated. This is the conversation about what kind of weapons are allowable to use. If we drop an atom bomb and destroy an entire city, is that better than the war? Uh, Non-combatants or civilians, we all know this, must not be intentionally harmed. This is one of the things being uh, uh, brought up right now, that there are accusations of war crimes against Russia for bombing things like schools and nursing homes and hospitals and intentionally injuring non-combatants. This is also what makes uh, some of the warfare after 9-11 so difficult. We couldn't tell who was a combatant and who wasn't. And then lastly, prisoners and conquered peoples have to be treated justly. Uh, I remember I was in Richmond, Virginia, and right there, I think it's the James River, there is a prison, right? In the, or what was, there's an island, which was a prison for Union soldiers in the Civil War. And I remember just thinking, 
uh, and hearing the stories of what happened there and how unjust that was. And so that's the last tenet. Prisoners and conquered people have to be treated justly. Now, these are the Christian standards for the just war. These are not necessarily the standards that a nation state will hold to. But the key for us is that as Christians, we are not ultimately, and please hear what I'm saying here, we are not ultimately loyal to our nation. We are ultimately loyal to the kingdom of heaven and our Lord Jesus. This is why the early church was persecuted, because they kept saying things like, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. This is why they were persecuted. They were usurping Caesar's role and saying there's a higher Lord. And we are saying the same thing. There is a higher Lord, and in his kingdom, there will be no war. And so that's our desire. But since that kingdom isn't here yet in its fullness, here are the ways that we believe our Lord would have us live, and we don't compromise on those. Not even when we've been wronged or when the desire for vengeance creeps its way into our hearts, because that's what happens to me. I see images of people running from their homes, clutching their babies in their arms, and I want to see revenge. That's what happens in my heart. And so that's not what is needed uh, but that's the basic outline of just war. Now, let's get to Christian pacifism, uh, the, which is basically the opposition to all war. And, and I've noticed, as I've talked to people, there are different attitudes towards Christian pacifism depending on the generation you find yourself in. So my generation seems to be a little more friendly to the idea, probably because we didn't experience war like previous generations did. And so we need to take that into account. But if you talk to my grandfather about pacifists, he had a very negative attitude about it. Because why? He fought in war. And so Christian pacifism is a minority view throughout Christianity. Throughout the history of the church, it's a minority view. But it's the dominant belief in certain denominations, in particular Mennonite, uh, Quaker, they are nonviolent denominations. They don't believe that there is any excuse for that. And in fact, just about the first 300 years of the church, of Christianity, they were nonviolent as well. And in fact, there are some accounts where you couldn't even be a soldier and be a member of a church. So we have changed our attitudes over the history of the world. And so what I want to say about this, um, I, I want to say this because of the fact that pacifism is a minority view in Christian history and because of the way that I heard this position talked about as I grew up in church, right? It, it's I want to say this, pacifism, true Christian pacifism, is not based on cowardice. That is not the basis for Christian pacifism. Pacifists are not simply afraid of war, and so they refuse, right? The, the ones that are doing this in good faith. That's, that, that is just not at all what this position is about. This is a position that's coming from conscience, conviction, and a very principled and, frankly, respectable position that I find kind of convincing. I'm not quite there but I have to say that after reading and understanding and studying, I could see myself maybe getting there. But I'm not there. It's a respectable position with a long history in the Christian tradition. And the reason why I can't quite get there is also the reason why I think I could get there. And I'll get to that when it comes to revenge. So where does the framework for Christian pacifism or nonviolence come from? Well, for pacifists, they would say it comes directly from Jesus comes right from the words of Jesus. They take their example from Jesus, who never resisted his persecutors. When the mob came to arrest him, 
One of his followers, you know the story, tried to defend him with a sword. And what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 26? Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. So many of Jesus' apostles and his other followers, and as I said, the early church, many of them were martyred for their faith, but we see a lot of evidence that they didn't use violence to resist this. They didn't use violence. Now, that's not necessarily a prescription. It's a description of what happened in history, but we have to take it into account. Another justification for pacifism is the belief that the kingdom of God is set apart from the world, that we are part of another kingdom. You remember Jesus said when he was about to be crucified, my followers are not from this world. We don't fight with the weapons of this world. And so the world is going to continue in sin of all kinds, including war. But those who truly belong to the kingdom of God, we are called to put our trust in God totally and to obey all of Jesus' teachings, including his teachings, which we read a little bit ago, against violence. Don't return violence for violence. This is the argument. Uh, there's a number of other Bible passages that are cited in favor of this pacifist position. Uh, Matthew 5, Romans 12, 2 Corinthians 10, 1 Peter 2, Hebrews 10. There's a number of other ones. I can give you the notes after if you'd like. Uh, but here's Romans 12, 14 through 20. This is an important text. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, that verse, the pacifists have to deal with, if it depends on you. 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, a few criticisms of this pacifist position. Uh, some people would say that it amounts to just surrender to aggression, and that the evil that results from that surrender ends up being worse than the war that would have had to happen in order to solve it. That's a, that's a critique that has to be dealt with. Uh, another criticism is that pacifism is utopian, meaning that they're dreaming of a world that's just not here yet, and that pacifists are unfairly reaping the benefits of the freedom earned by those who were willing to sacrifice their lives in war. This is the most emotionally charged critique of pacifism. You talk to someone who has a critique of pacifism uh, and they've served in the military or lost a friend who served in the military, this is where they'll get frustrated and they're not wrong about that. That's a difficult critique. However, a pacifist would reply that pacifism doesn't mean being passive, but instead that it's active peacemaking through every means except violence, that they have a principled uh, they, they draw a line and they just don't cross it. They would point to Jesus' words again in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And, and pacifists would point to, Christians and non-Christian pacifists alike, would point to the success of some nonviolent resistance movements, right? 
Uh, there were Swedish and Danish resistance to Nazism in, during World War II. Uh, of course, Gandhi's independent movement in, in India was another non-violent uh, movement, civil rights movement here in the United States of Martin Luther King. Uh, and then the, there was a labor movement in Poland, which was also a nonviolent movement. And so many Christian pacifists see nonviolence as the only way to break out of the cycle that they see of hatred, war, and revenge, which have dominated human history. And even as we think about the conflict in Ukraine, if you listen to Vladimir Putin's words, he's going back in history and saying, I'm trying to set right what happened back here, and so I'm going to use violence to do it. Uh, and so they, the pacifist argument would say, this is the only way we can break that cycle. Now, whether or not you agree with that or not, just understand they're making a faithful uh, argument that's based on uh, good thinking. So to end, and, and, and as as much as I can give the what I think are fair criticisms of the pacifist view, let me also give the main criticism for the just war view. Uh, and to do that, what I wanted, this is the main criticism that I have in my own heart. As someone who, as I think about it, I lean towards, reluctantly, towards a just war view of the world. But, but here's my, my main critique of my own view. And I'm going to go back to that verse in Romans 12. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So for me, this is where I simply don't trust my own heart. My heart is more sinful and dark than I want it to be. When it comes to war and violence, I just don't trust my heart to not switch over into desires for revenge without me even knowing it. Because you can be sinning without you knowing it. That's, what, that's the way sin works. And I want to push on us to be honest with ourselves when we're watching the news, when we have an interaction with someone where we're wrong, that we don't switch, allow ourselves to switch over to let the seed of revenge take root in our hearts. And, and the way that works is that attitude we all get where, well, this person started the fight, but I'm going to finish it. Whether that be in war or that be in mean words in the comments of Facebook or whatever, that's the seed that we have to watch out for. This is where... For me, as I think about these really difficult issues, this is where I might, I, I might see myself convinced that the nonviolent approach could be the right approach for some of us. If you find in yourself an inability to not take revenge, perhaps deciding that violence will never be the answer for you is the right answer. This is a matter of conscience. We live in a world where violence, oppression, and war exist. And because we believe that all human life, all human life is eternally valuable, taking our cues for how we think about these issues from the popular cultural views around us is just simply not good enough for us as Christians. We are called to something higher. And I want to challenge us when we think about war and just war and pacifism, connect that to what you think about the pro-life issue. It's connected because human life is human life. Does that mean it's an easy answer? No. We, we have a high calling to care more deeply, which means we have to prayerfully and honestly consider these issues so that we can faithfully be a witness to the kingdom of God that's coming, which is why we need community around us. We need faithful brothers and sisters around us to go, hey, I hear what you're saying, but have you thought about this? 
Or, you know, I read this thing, and maybe if you read this, it would, it would help you see this in a little bit different way like I have. We're called to care more deeply, which means we have to be prayerfully, honestly considering these things because our role is to be a witness of the kingdom that's coming. And in that kingdom, there's a Lord, his name is Jesus, and there won't be war. This is what we are as Christians. We are witnesses of a different Lord and a different kingdom. So, so that's kind of my hope for today is that just perhaps that you'll be prompted to consider these factors a little bit. You're living in a world that's difficult and hard and has war and violence in it. You're living in a city that has violence in it. We know this, right? And so we have to consider these issues a little bit more. And my hope is that in considering these issues from a distinctly Christian perspective, what that will do is draw you closer to Jesus. And as a result, in your life, you will see more of the fruit of Jesus, which is love, joy, and peace. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for the ability, frankly, to sit in a room that's air-conditioned and think about these things. We have electricity. We have a place to sit. We have a comfortable chair, Lord. And so we thank you, and we don't take that for granted. But at the same time, we know that you've called us to be faithful with all of who we are. And so we want to think rightly. We want to feel rightly. We want to believe rightly about you and your gospel and what that means for our world as we think about something like the devastating realities of war. Would you help us to uh, be faithful in being a witness to your kingdom as we go out from here? And would you allow us to speak life and love and joy and peace into this situation that any situation we find ourselves in as we're around people from our workplaces and our families and our neighborhoods and uh, just spheres of influence around us that we would have a different view of the world than anybody else around us has because we're from a different kingdom. We pray this in your name for your glory. Amen.